Today's episode is brought to you by BlockFills, powering digital trading. I'm joined by James Lavish, Managing Director at the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund and author of the Informationist newsletter on Substack. James, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you doing today? I'm good. And uh, thanks for having me, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, have a conversation with you. Pleasure's all mine, James. I want to talk about so much. But first, I just want to throw a little bit of a question at you. How would you assess the health of the American traditional financial system at this juncture? Because I feel like a lot of people have been throwing things at the financial system, and but it's, it's proven pretty resilient so far. What, what would you say? Yeah, you know, uh, it is resilient. And I think there, there's a couple of things you have to look at. And first of all, uh, if you just look at the economy and you look at the, you know, the Treasury and Congress and, and the spending that that uh, we have on our plate, it's not healthy long term, you know, long, long term that we're not on a healthy path. And the bottom line is we're just we're too indebted. And it goes from the government all the way down to the consumer, right? Governments and local governments and then companies and individuals. It's just there's a lot of debt out there. And so that with that debt, there's just leverage. There's leverage in the system. And so you see that what we what we've witnessed the past year, and it's not just here in the United States. You know, it's it's in a lot of the developed Western, uh, you know, especially hemisphere, but uh, the developed countries, the the developed systems, any any country that has a fiat uh, denominated debt that that they have denominated in their own currency is tremendously indebted. We're watching it right now in in Japan. We can come back and talk about that. We're watching it in Europe. We've seen cracks uh, appear there, you know, um, and and we've seen it in the UK. There's there's cracks that have appeared there. In fact, they had a, they had a major fissure over the last year, um, just just under a year ago with their pension system, and that's because of the the leverage in the system. Period. And so, uh, long long term, Jack, I think that it's not healthy. However, here in the United States, we have a tremendous benefit of being denominated in the global reserve currency, the U.S. dollar. And up to this point, uh, there's been no question for for many decades now that the U.S. Treasury is the global reserve asset. And so um, but we're watching countries move away from this. The BRICS nations in particular, they're they're that. Uh, cooperative, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa that are trying to move away from the treasury. That's a, that's a, you know, a red flag. It's a, it's a stop sign that we could just kind of blowing right through here. However, now all that said, everything, you know, with the, with the Fed raising rates to battle inflation, all that said, you're right. The, the economy has proven resilient and the, uh, the consumer has proven resilient. But when you look deeper into it and you and you dig under the surface a little bit, you notice that there's a great separation of wealth between the the super rich and pretty much everybody else. Um, you know, we've got the student loan debt that is going to come back online. So you have a, a many consumers that are uh, younger. They're in their 20s and 30s and early 40s that are going to have to start making tr- huge payments on on the student debt that they hadn't been making before, and that's going to impact retail uh, in particular. 
So, uh, and then on top of it, you've got the, the commercial real estate market and you've, you've watched, we just saw the fifth um, small bank, regional bank fail this year on Friday. And so in this time in Kansas, and it wasn't a huge bank, but it's just a signal. It's a symptom of the issues that we have here and just the amount of, of leverage and debt that is on the table. And it's, it's like we have this, this disease Jack, we're, we're diseased with this fiat denominated debt that we just can't cure. There's no cure for it. And that's the ultimate problem. And so we can we can kind of dig further into that. But uh, maybe a, an extended answer to your first question. But that's that's kind of just the landscape to me. And that's what concerns me. So leverage is borrowed money. And then a lot of different entities borrow money. So there's the government, the U.S. government corporations, companies, we can divide that into like financial, non-financial, and then uh, uh, the private sector, individuals, households, stuff like that. So on the government sector, yes, definitely the US is borrowing a a ton of money. And uh, whether it's unsustainable, who knows? I mean, there are people who said it was unsustainable in 2010, 2011. And here we are. On the banks, I actually think, isn't true that banks are actually less levered than they were prior to the great financial crisis. Non-financial corporations, I I totally... uh, yield to you. They're definitely more indebted, although a lot of them had you know, long-term debt that they issued when interest rates were low. So the rise in interest rates isn't hurting them maybe as much as you know, I, I at least had thought. And then uh, individuals, I think, the, the, I feel like individual credit card revolving debt peaked in like 2000, honestly. And it's been pretty like stable since then. Yeah. Well, if you look at the, if you look at the different, um, you know, if you break it out uh, in, in the, the different sections of, of the uh, you know the constituents of the economy you know so by income or by wealth right you see that the the lowest uh, fifth and then the next highest the, the the second lowest fifth they're taking on debt a lot faster and uh, and they're they're starting to uh, they're starting to default on payments and so when you average it all out it doesn't look bad at all. But when you start digging in a little bit deeper, there are people who are hurting in this economy. There's just no question about it. Um, so, but let's back up a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. I like to keep things simple. That's why that's my whole, the whole purpose of my newsletter is to simplify all this stuff for everybody. So I want to make sure that everybody understands, first of all, debt in and of itself is not evil. You know, all debt does is it brings future productivity into the now, Right. Say you want to open a restaurant there, you know, um, and say you have a maybe you've got $10,000 in the bank, right? Uh, or maybe you've got $20,000 in the bank and you want to open this restaurant. It's going to cost you $100,000 between payments for the lease, buying equipment, leasing equipment, paying uh, initial salaries, everything. It's going to cost you about $100,000. But if you needed that $100,000, you could either wait and build up your income and and your savings in order to get that $100,000, or you could take out a a small business loan. Hard to do on restaurants, but again, for the sake of argument. Um, So you could take out that loan and then you're buying equipment, you're leasing the property, you are paying employees, and that's all capital that you've borrowed. Essentially, it it goes through from the banks up to the federal, uh, the Fed's balance sheet we've borrowed off of. And now we're injecting that uh, that liquidity into the, the markets 
meaning you, you're, you're generating productivity, right? And so that's, that's not a bad thing as long as you borrow responsibly and you don't get over your ski tips, meaning you, you don't borrow so much that you can't make those debt payments. It's, it's okay, you know? But the problem is we've, we were in a period, a long period of time there since 2010 where interest rates were near zero for most of that period. There was a little period in there before uh, the pandemic where rates started ticking up, but the rates have been low for a very long time. And so you could borrow at virtually zero, right? So, or just above it, um, if you're a major bank and if you're a consumer, just a few percent, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. But that zero interest rate policy, ZERP is what we call it, you know, it's come back to now haunt people. Going back to your um, your statement about the banks, yes, they are they are capitalized well. However, the problem is that as the, the Fed has raised rates so rapidly, so steeply, the issue is that the banks have their deposits that they have to keep reserves on, according to the, the rules. You don't even have to have reserves now, but they have internal measures that they're that they're keeping track of to make sure that the risks aren't too great, right? Internally. Well, those internal measures did not anticipate this rise in rates so rapidly, right? For a few reasons. We hadn't seen it like this for a very long time. The Fed and all of the Fed governors and presidents and of all the, the Fed banks, they all declared, hey, look, this is just transitory inflation. It's going to come back down once the supply chain issues are, are solved. But the reality is that they weren't. The second thing is they, they forecast their rates. If you look back uh, at 2022, in December of 2021, right? So December of 2021, looking towards 2022, the Fed puts out what it calls the, the Fed dot plot. And all the dot plot is, is all the, all the, the Fed... Uh, you know, all the all the people at the Fed who are part of that governing group, the governing body, they whether they're governors and they're serving or they're on the board or they're just you know uh, they're part of that uh, that assembly, they they vote, they basically predict where they think rates are going to be and they put these little dots on a plot saying they're going to be at one percent, one point two percent, and it averages out. Okay, so if you look back. In December 2021, when the banks were, they were lending out money, they were putting cash in reserves, they were taking deposits, putting cash in reserves. But when they have that cash, they need to do something with it, right? So they need to buy treasuries or invest it or do something with it. So, and they thought, well, we'll just buy long-term treasuries. It's safe. They're, you know, uh, it's, the, it's the riskless asset. It's the least risky asset in the world. So we'll buy that and just put it on our books and then we'll be, we'll be fine. If we need liquidity, we've got the treasuries. Well, looking at the dot plot, that seemed like a pretty good plan, right? To just plow all that money into long-term treasuries. And some banks, what they do is they'll hedge out what's called interest rate risk and that those rates could move and that could impact the cost of those bonds, the, the, the value of those bonds in the open market. So the issue is they looked at the plot, they listened to the governors, they listened to the, the, the Fed speakers and presidents and, and whatnot. And they heard, all they heard was transitory, 
supply supply chain issues. It's going to be solved. Rates are going to be on average in that dot plot. On average, the Fed the the Fed predicted that rates would be at 0.86 percent. Now you and I both know that they missed by quite a bit. Well, it depends you know, on when. Yeah, I mean, they, I think they, they they said that at December 2022, one year later. Sorry, rates will be at 0.86 percent. But in December of 2021, you mean they said they they said that and they predicted one year later they would yeah. be at 0.86%. So one year later, where were they? They were over 4%. So they missed by a massive amount. So when you think about that, and it doesn't sound like a lot, they missed by a few percent. Oh, it it does sound like a lot. <laughs> right. But just in 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 absolute terms, 3%, what could that do for a long-term bond? Well, if you take a 30-year treasury that's yielding 0.25 or 0.5%. And now it now in the market is asking for over 4%. Well, you have 30 years of interest that you have to make up on that, right? And so the bond price falls in the market. So if you're holding those bonds and you're you're a bank, that's fine. You could wait 30 years. And you can get your interest rates, interest payments every every month or every, you know, every year you're getting your interest payments that correspond to that 0. 0.25 to 0.5%. And then when it matures, you turn it back in, you get your money back. However, if you need money, if your depositors realize that you really don't have as much money in reserves as you, you say you do or you thought you did, and they get nervous, then they'll they'll start taking their deposits out. And this is exactly what we saw happen up in uh, in the silicon, right? So when they did that and they started taking their money out, the banks they needed liquidity, right? So silicon they needed they, they you know silicon valley they needed liquidity. So they went to the market and they said they they're like, well, they, we have to take a twenty five to thirty percent loss on these bonds just to get some cash. And that just started and it started the snowball effect. So yes, banks are are capitalized better than they were. However, there's interest rate risk they've had, and we don't know exactly where it stands. You know, they're look, banks, you you can mark your books and you can mark your risk and you can look at risk in a whole lot of ways. And if they look at risk and say, well, we're just going to assume that these bonds are, are going to, we're going to hold them at at maturity level pricing, right? So as if we we're going to hold them to maturity, well, then they're they're kind of lying to themselves and lying to their uh, their investors. It's a fiction that every, every, I mean, every people who in the know, you know, who are professionals, they know it's they know that they're marketing this at par, but you could they couldn't actually trade it at par. You know, it's correct. Yeah, and it's right. it's a it's a, a legal thing. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah, I think you, you say you make a lot of good points. Interest rates rose a ton and banks had a lot of securities on their portfolio that declined tremendously in value, but they also could make loans at higher yields and their deposit costs went up, but their loan yields went up, uh, but maybe not as much because uh, they went up so interest rates went up so quickly. So their their net interest margins are, are impacted. I'd say it's more of a regional bank phenomenon than the large money center banks that really are at the center of the global financial system and the economy, I, I think they are pr pretty good. And it also depends on credit. And 
the, the economy. If the economy continues to be really good, then a lot of banks can make a lot of those loans with very low net charge-offs, you know, non-performing assets, and their net interest margins are good. But if they really have to pull back on credit because the economy is is bad, that's when they really get squeezed. And I think a lot of it is, is already represented in the in the in the bank system. So okay, so I think so far, James, you, you make a convincing case on. Uh, pressures building within the traditional financial system. But what it me- leads me to believe, if, if sort of your implications are correct, is, oh, we have a credit cycle, we have a recession, maybe it's a mild recession, but we come out of a recession. And, you know, now we have an inverted yield curve. Once we go into a recession, and let's say perhaps, you know, the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates or, or you know, long-term yields go up, uh, we have a positive upward sloping yield curve again. Now that is the time to buy. And the debt cycle, you know, renews. The phoenix rises from the ashes. Now make the case, and that's fine, we can talk about that. But now make the case that, oh, the phoenix isn't going to rise from the ashes. It's going to change into an entirely new financial system. And you know, where does this lead us to Bitcoin? You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, okay. Well, if there is no, if there's a soft landing, or you know, uh, we just go into a mild recession, that would be that would be super positive for the economy. Absolutely, no question about it. But you cannot, you just cannot escape the fact that we have tremendous leverage at the treasury level, right? And sort of sovereign I mean, level, U.S. government. Yeah, the, the sovereign level, the, 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 exactly, and with U.S. Treasuries in particular. So the problem here is that we're running at such a large deficit that we're gonna hit, we're gonna hit two trillion dollars this year, in my belief, maybe a little bit more uh, of a of deficit, and that is that's just your the amount that you have to borrow as a treasury in order to pay all of the expenses that you have. So we're in what's called, and, and you know, you may have seen this in some of my writings, but we're in what's called a, a, a debt spiral. And the issue is that as the government needs to borrow more, it's borrowing at a higher rate here, which just creates larger interest rate payments, which creates the need for more debt. And so if we go into recession, then you can expect the economy to dip, you know, anywhere from eight to fourteen percent. Let's call it eight to twelve percent. Let's call it ten percent. Well, you're going to take a ten percent hit on GDP, which gives you a ten percent at least hit on your taxes, right? So now you you're you're creating even more debt. So the issue here is that as debt expires, right, as it matures. The treasury has to borrow money in order to pay off that old debt. So it's continuously happening. So what we saw over this last spring is that we bumped up against, we actually tripped the, the debt ceiling. And so we did it in February. And so the uh, the treasury, and it's not, there, it's really not even the treasury's fault. I mean, let's call it what it is. It's Congress because Congress yep. is a legislative body that decides the spending. Tre- treasury is just, it's their job to, borrow the money that they have to because of Congress. And yeah, the last time yeah. the U.S. government ran a, a government surplus, I think 2000, 2001, 1999, somewhere around there. And yeah, since then, it's it's gone down. And yeah, the U.S. borrows a lot of money. And now interest rates are going up. And a lot of the new refunding from the Treasury is actually on the short end of the yield curve. So they constantly have to refinance, um, you know, instead of borrowing. I mean, you know, maybe... If uh, someone else is at the treasury, they'd borrow in the in the twenty year, thirty year market, which would not be great for the financial system for the uh, uh, in the market, but it would be good, fi- you know, financial prudence to borrow at longer term yields. Okay, so so do you actually think that rising interest rates are 
inflationary or de- or defl- disinflationary because you know that's why the Federal Reserve raised rates is to combat inflation. Yeah, this is a great question. I've seen uh, you know uh, Luke Groman talk about this quite a bit recently, uh, and Lynn Alden, and you know the reality is as the Treasury pays the coupon on all these all these bonds, it's it's just injecting more liquidity into the banks or these large institutions that hold them and some individuals that hold uh, treasuries. And so it is injecting some some capital back into the into the uh, economy. There's no question about it. But you also can't you, you can't dismiss the other side where it costs more money for businesses and corporations to to operate, period. It's just costing more money. And so that in, in turn, reduces profitability, which reduces their ability to pay people. And eventually, the, you know, you're going to have a you'll either have a multiple expansion, which we're seeing in the markets a little bit, where the the price of the stock of a company stays the same or, or goes up even as earnings come down. Or you see the price of the stock come down to keep the same multiple and, you know, uh, and uh, match that that forward earnings guidance. So either way, but you know the issue here is um, running deficits. Running deficits is inflate. It's inflationary it, it, because you're you're as you as the government borrows money, it is it, it's injecting all of that capital into the markets and in and. and uh, because it's it's operating on what we call the, you know with it's pulling forward that it's pulling forward productivity into today period it's the same it's the same kind of concept right so the question is at what rate do does the does the the fed the fed funds at what rate does it either crimp down on productivity so much that we go into that recession you know, just we just go over that waterfall, or does it create some sort of credit event where a large bank or a large company fails, and it has repercussions that reach out and and impact a number of other banks or companies? So in a in a contagion way, and then we have this collapse where the Fed has to step in and inject liquidity into the markets because it, we we have the danger of the the treasury market locking up and if we if the treasury market locks up it's game over but it won't because we can print our own money and we can we can monetize our own debt and we can keep the charade going which is exactly what we're seeing happen out in Japan and so that's uh you know there I don't see us collapsing here in the short term I just we're we're we can sustain this for a very long time. And the U.S. has, like I said in the beginning, the U.S. has the benefit of, of being the global reserve currency and mostly the global reserve asset with the U.S. Treasury, especially with euro dollars. But the issue is it's unsustainable, period. You can't we cannot do this in perpetuity. We, we are perpetually borrowing but we can't do it forever. That it, at some point, that that parabolic rise in debt will catch up to us. 
And I don't know when, I don't know if it's in, if it's in five years or 50 years, you know, but th this cannot keep happening. It, can, it, can, it cannot go on like this. And the treasury even admits it, you know, um, I've put out a, I showed a chart that the treasury even admits that this is, and they, they do, they do a study, right? They do periodic studies and they did a study at the beginning of this, this year. And the study was, it was called it was the you know uh it was the state of the treasury you know kind of a state of the union of the treasury and our finances and uh, and the subtitle to it was an unsustainable fiscal path and it showed a chart of the of the u.s debt just going straight up to the right um against gdp so it was just showing how it was expanding to 200 300 400 800 percent of you know gdp and that, that can't go on without at some point the world looking at us and realizing that our dollars are worth so much less in just a few years. Nobody wants to buy our debt. And that's when we have to just step in and buy all of our own debt. And that's the step to hyperinflation. Again, I, I want I want to make it clear. I don't think this is happening in a year or two. I, that's yeah. not my belief. But if we continue on this path and we just bail, if we just continue to bail out, bail out, make sure that the market's liquid, print more money, borrow more money, raise the, raise more debt. We're in this cycle that we can't get out of. And eventually it collapses on itself. There's just, it's just math. There's no way around it, period. I'm here today to tell you about Blockfills, a crypto trading solutions and financial technology firm founded in 2018. Since then, Blockfills has been ushering institutional investors into the digital assets marketplace with their array of services, providing liquidity, prime lending, their over-the-counter desk, which is prolific, their industry-leading SaaS suite, and their market-leading electronic trading venue, which provides unprecedented speed, ability, and flexibility. Importantly, Blockfills' electronic trading venue has no hidden fees and offers much better connectivity, pricing, and technology. That's why it's the premier destination for liquidity providers and professional consumers in digital assets. Learn more at blockfills.com slash trading. Thanks. And let's get back to the interview. It's a long-term, long-term view. I think that's really important to, to stress. Okay. So, but where does this lead to hyperinflation? Because like, for example, Bank of Japan borrows a lot, tons of uh, money printing with quantitative easing. But they've actually had deflation for a really long time and consumer prices. And isn't what really matters uh, is the level of the dollar relative to other currencies and then the domestic inflation rate. So if, if domestic inflation rate is contained in the U.S. and the U.S. is a strong currency against other fiat currencies, uh, where does this hyperinflation scenario come in? Yeah, well, Japan is a different animal, right? Because Japan is, they, they have a different economy than us. They're a net exporter. Their demographics are entirely different with their elderly uh, population, you know, um, and they and they are at the point where they're over 250% debt to GDP. Their, their central bank, the Bank of Japan, owns more than 50% of their own debt, you know, and again, they just... They said that they were going to uh, they were going to loosen up their yield curve control on their ten year treasury. What they're doing is like you just said, they're trying to battle deflation. So while the rest of the world is having inflation, they're having deflation. They're trying to stimulate the economy, and the way to do that is to keep rates low, right? Keep injecting money into the into the and market. And that's what they they did 
over over the past you know multiple decades. Now by widening the band, that is letting inter- letting the ten year JGB yield go up to as high as one percent. So correct, high. yeah. They 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 loosen the band, but they did it in a way that was kind of weird, right? So they they announced that their target is still half a percent, but the hard stop is one percent. So where's this? Where's the stop? And then I saw this morning that they had an emergency liquidity. Uh, measure where they stepped back in and bought bonds again. So the issue here is that the market doesn't know what they're going to do. But, you know, as they do that, they're they're having to sell U.S. Treasuries in order to keep the yen stable and in order to buy more yen denominated bonds. Right. So it's just it, it's a strange dynamic that is it's completely different from the U.S. You can't look at that. And the second thing is, again, like I said, the U.S. has the benefit of being the world reserve currency. And so everybody needs dollars. You know, there's so much debt around the world that's denominated in U.S. dollars. It's not just U.S. It's just it's not just foreign governments owning U.S. debt foreign corporations owning U.S. debt. It's the fact that there's so many countries that they can't denominate debt in their own currency, so they denominate in the dollar, and so they need dollars. And it's, uh, it, it's the, it's the, you can go around the whole world and use dollars. So this is going to take a very long time. How do we get to hyperinflation when the, the entire world just gives up on fiat-denominated currency and realizes that the high inflation is affecting them so negatively that they want out of that system and they don't want to own those anymore. Well, they have to have something else to go to. I don't personally believe that we're going to get to a state of hyperinflation in the U.S. dollar, at least not in my lifetime. I do think, however, that there is a case to be made that it it the currency, the global currency will eventually be backed by a hard asset. We used to use gold. Gold is not perfect, you know, um, for many reasons. It's heavy. It's difficult to, to, to transfer. It's difficult to, uh, you know, to uh, deliver. So it can be, uh, it's difficult to, to uh, be sure that, to verify that it is, uh, it's real. You have to actually cut into it or do, um, you know, chemical tests on it, uh, sonic tests, whatever. And, and so th- that's not the perfect solution. We've, we've been on the gold uh, standard before we got off it, but I can see in the future people, governments just demanding that to the knowledge that whatever currency they're using is backed by something that whoever's issuing it isn't just going to issue a whole bunch more like we've been doing. Why do they care? Well, I mean, if you're if you're a family of four today and you're going to the grocery store, you know damn well that prices of groceries are, are up anywhere, depending on what you buy, anywhere from 20 to 40 or 50 percent from just a few years ago, you know, and that's a major problem. And if you're if you had been working hard, you're saving your money, you put it in the bank, you've got these dollars are sitting there and you realize, God, 10 years ago, this could have bought this, and now it can buy half of that or less. Well, you realize that the dollar isn't as strong as you thought it was, and it forces you to take on risks that you wouldn't otherwise take in order to keep up with inflation. And so I think eventually, as we print more and more, and as we have to monetize our own debt, 
you know, expand the money supply to do so, it leads to that hard currency desire. And the hardest currency in the world, the hardest asset in the world is to me, Bitcoin. And so that's where the path leads to. Eventually it leads to that path. Again, I don't know how long it takes, Jack. I wish it would, you know, we'd have more visibility on that. But this is, I'm going to tell you in no way, shape and form, I have been investing for 30 years. This is the most difficult market I've ever seen. It is extraordinarily uh, complicated. There's so many factors. There are global factors. There are local factors. There are U.S. factors. There's so much going on that the best thing you can do is, in my mind, is definitely own a little bit of Bitcoin. The, the The wrong allocation is zero. You know, I also think the wrong allocation is 100 because unless you unless you feel you're just young and you can make that all back, no big deal. Okay, well, that's that's a different situation. But somebody like me or, you know, uh, has a family or has expenses that they've got to keep up that, you know, um, having zero is the wrong answer. Having 100 is the wrong answer. It's somewhere in between. And that's a very personal decision. But on the other side of it, you need to be diversified. And so um, that's where we're at in the market right now. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's not the the most enjoyable answer, but it's truly where we're at. And uh, I don't think bonds are dead. You know, they're not dead, but they are risky. They're far more risky than than the government will lead you to believe. The least risky is the U.S. Treasury. If you can hold those to maturity. As long as you don't buy a fifty-year bond, I think you know you might be okay. So, yeah. So, so the gold standard, the sterling standard, a lot, a lot of uh, fiat currencies were the standard before the dollar. It was the sterling standard before that, the, the Dutch guilder, and those were backed by gold. When banks made loans, they uh, I, actually I don't think it was regulation. They I mean they just had to have gold reserves, and they went under if they didn't. And people, you know, there was there was a run on that bank. And so the sterling standard functioned in the same way the dollar standard. You know, all these loans were issued in sterling currency. They were made out out of London to to all around the world, and those were uh, backed by gold. Again, it was not you know you know like people going to the street and buying coffee w- with gold. You know, it, all, almost all currency was uh, fiat currency, and the gold that did exist was mostly in the vault of banks or or bank reserves. It did not really you know, gold did not see a lot of sunlight. Let's put it that way. So in the Bitcoin standard that you imagine or some sort of Bitcoin as a reserve asset, is it, do you also see it as that where people are not, you know, I mean, because when, when Bitcoin uh, first was around, they're saying, oh, you buy stuff in Bitcoin. I mean, the guy who bought you know pizza for 50 Bitcoin or, or something like that. <laughs> I mean, do you, because I've always really struggled, to be honest, James, to see how uh, Bitcoin could function as a true currency, because if Bitcoin is the hardest money, and you know if the thing that Bitcoin's best at is is going up because there's not a lot of it, why would you ever spend it? First of all, the the Bitcoin the, the Bitcoin network is not made for quick transactions, but you can build on top of it, and we're seeing that happen with the Lightning Network. It's really important. That's a really important feature, right? Um, so I think what happens is just like you're saying is. You have the you, you you're going to have some sort of currency, and I think it's going to be more like the U.S. dollar, long, long, long term. Um, that's going to be on top of this, and you can have your Bitcoin, or you know, they, it's going to be that 
digital gold, but in a much, much stronger uh, form of it. And so you'll have that as your backing. You'll have that as a reserve. And so any government that wants to print money or want, they, they just won't be able to, they'll have to own a certain amount of Bitcoin in order to do it. I, I did, again, like we're talking, I, I want to make this clear. I don't, this is not something I think happens in the next few years. Um, you know, I think, I mean, there would be a lot of people in our circles who would be made extraordinarily wealthy if it was, but I don't think that that's going to be the case. I think it's going to take a very long time. The U.S. dollar is not going anywhere, and uh, and that would be what people trade in, you know. And so we're seeing it, like, for instance, what we're seeing happen with the BRICS uh, nations. Do I think they're going to succeed at this? No, I don't. But it's a very important, uh, it's a very important development for people to take note of is that you've got these nations that are banding together and what are they trying to do? They're trying to avoid having to hold us treasuries in order to uh, have, you know, make trades in very uh, important commodities like oil and gas, right? So they don't want to settle those in dollars anymore. They want to settle them in a different currency. The problem is what do you settle them in? Do you settle them in one? Do you sell them in, in settle them in rubles? You know, um, they don't have one currency they can all trust between themselves. So what they're talking about doing and what they're whispering about doing is, is figuring out one backing for all the currencies. And whether that's gold, which is something that they've been whispering about, or it's Bitcoin, it'll be something that has to be verified as their whatever currency that they're, they're, they're trading in has to be backed by a certain amount of that asset. And between them, does it come out that they have one digital one that uh, that everybody trades in that's backed by Bitcoin or backed by gold? That's possible. Maybe a, a, a combination of both. The issue with the BRICS nations, though, is that they haven't been, you know, they haven't been trustworthy. I don't know how much they'll trust each other. And you've got dictators at, at the heads of, of these states. And I, I don't know how how that would really work. Politically, I just don't see it. I don't see that happening, at least not again in the near future. Uh, but it's kind of a wake up call to the United States that there are many nations out there that are trying to that are trying to apply to and want to be part of the BRICS just in case that happens. Maybe it's game theory, but they are trying to move away from the Treasury. That's a that's a major warning sign. And so what you're seeing here with the Fed and the Treasury, with Powell and with Yellen, is that they're consistently out there trying to drum up uh, confidence in the U.S. dollar and in the Treasury, saying that everything's great. You know, we don't even see a recession coming. That uh, we we're we're on strong footing. We we can uh, you know we we always basically we're we're out there saying we always we always pay our debts. And so the world is going to have to believe us until they don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they, you know, there are a lot of uh, jawboning the dollar up. I, I don't think they really have to. When American, you know, dollar interest rates are at 5.5% and Chinese interest rates are at 2%. I mean, it's it's an uphill battle for uh, the Asian countries, so Japan, China. 100%. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so in the, in the gold standard, you know, uh, sterling was pegged to gold, other currencies pegged to gold, when the effect meant that they were all pegged to each other. Do you know I mean, so it was, is 
the currency is going to be fixed to Bitcoin as well? Are they fixed to the amount of Bitcoin, fixed to the dollar price of Bitcoin? Like, let's say there was a, you know, a trillion dollars in bank credit that was a ratio of five to one. So there's what, $200 billion worth of Bitcoin. And then Bitcoin goes from $70,000 to uh, $20,000. Does that mean that there's a huge increase in bank credit because uh, now they have to hold less Bitcoin? Or you know, what if Bitcoin goes up? Now there's a huge contraction. And I guess the point I'm really trying to get at is what if, you know, d- doesn't an economy require credit to grow? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. But, you know, in reality, if you look at the reality of it and, and how these things would work is, you know, Bitcoin would be, there would be so there would be so much money in that protocol there would be so much liquidity that the volatility would disappear it would not be volatile anymore it would get to a price that was sustainable and was not moving at 10% of the clip anymore you know it it would move more like currencies do very slowly you know and so um i think uh, i think that's that's an important you know, reality around it. Look, it's a tiny, 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 tiny asset. When you look at Bitcoin on a chart of all the global assets out there, you know, we're less than a half a trillion dollars right now in, in Bitcoin, but we're at we're at over $10 trillion in gold, you know. We're at over $100 trillion in stocks, 120 to $140 trillion of 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 bonds, depending on, you know, which measures you're looking at, um, 300 plus trillion dollars of real estate, you know, Bitcoin's tiny. It's, it, that's why it's so volatile because it's just, it's just tiny. And there, there are big chunks of money that try to come in, but they, it, it moves the markets. And quite honestly, if you look at, if you watch the pricing of Bitcoin, you could see that there's, it can be, manipulated in the markets now with with large players using uh you know margined positions in order to move this thing around and try to and these could be hedge funds likely hedge funds that are trying to catch people who are offsides in their own margin and wipe them out and clean up and you know move the market just enough to get to prices that they can they can then either sell or buy them back so that's that's the issue right now. Is it can't? It, it's just not. There's there's just not enough liquidity in the protocol yet. There's not there's not enough assets locked up in it in order to uh, to keep that volatility down. So and uh, so it would be fixed or it wouldn't it wouldn't be fixed because in the gold standard it was it was fixed. Personally, I would see it more as a fixed price, but. You, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen between now and then and for us, for the entire globe to get on that standard. You know, I would see if the BRICS wanted to do that, yeah, it would have to be fixed. But, um, you know, that's a, that I, uh, there's so much uncertainty in, in that path. I, I can't even speculate. I don't know how it would look truly, uh, but that would I, make more sense I definitely don't know who, how it would look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so would you say that the, really the value of Bitcoin you see as kind of a call option on that scenario happening where, you know, if, if we go to a Bitcoin standard, it's half a million dollars, a million dollars per Bitcoin. And then the current price of 30,000 is kind of pricing in the potential of that happening. And it, so it's kind of a conditional value in the same way like there's a, a warrant on a deal that hasn't been done like the deal has to close or the, the warrant has no value you know what i mean so like what what if the if the deal doesn't close if bitcoin doesn't become the reserve asset what happens what, like yeah. what are, do you see any value in bitcoin if th- that doesn't happen absolutely and there okay so there's a 
part of the problem is that we're we're U.S. centric and we think of this in terms of price and investment and you know. But the reality is, Bitcoin is necessary for a lot of people around the world that that don't have access to banks. Uh, their own currencies are hyperinflating. You know, if you go, if you look in Lebanon and Venezuela, you know, they, they, these are places that people need to have their their earnings that they've that they've created. They have they have expended energy for a business or a company or whatever to create a product, to create. Um, productivity, and they've been compensated for that. Well, they've got to do something with that. They either spend it all and buy money or buy things, or if they want to save it, they've got to do it in something. But if you save it in the Venezuelan Boulevard, you're you're losing, you know, eighty percent of that or more this year. So that's not really a good option. Mm-hmm. So a better option is to buy Bitcoin, and even if it's volatile, you know, it's not. It's not volatile where it's going down and just stays down. It's volatile. It's doing, you know, this for a long period of time. Whereas if you're if you're in the boulevard, you know, it's going to go down and it never comes back. Right. So they've got to do something with that capital. And so when we think about price, we can't just keep it. We can't just look at it in terms of of that U.S. centric investment thesis, you know, this is this is essential for some people, especially if they want to flee regions where they're being oppressed. Well, they can't take gold with them. They can't take coins with them. They'll you know, they're likely to be confiscated at the border. They can't take their real estate with them or cash. So what do they do? They can they can memorize their their key phrase and just walk across the border. Right. And they've got the big Bitcoin goes everywhere. Right. So that's a pretty important kind of distinction to make when we talk about that, uh, when we talk about, you know, the near future and the, and the, the need for it. That definitely uh, is, is a use case of, you know, non-stable fiat currencies. Bitcoin does drastically outperform them on what, whatever time horizon, but so does the dollar outperforms those drastic. So, so it's, it's an interesting question. The answer something you were talking about is, is it an, a call option? Is it a hedge? And the answer is, look, that's why I say that the, the, only, the only allocation, the only allocation that's wrong in your portfolio is zero, is because it is, it is a hedge in a sense. But what it is, is, look, if, if, the, if, if the U.S. dollar some, for some reason hyperinflates, you don't want to have dollars in your bank, you know, you, and, you have, and you have some Bitcoin, well, your Bitcoin would be worth you know, multiples of what it was. So let's 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 pretend it's worth a hundred x of what it was because there's so much money that's going to come into that system to to have something hard to protect against inflation, right? So because Bitcoin can't just be created. So at least if it goes into that protocol, we know that no more is going to be created than is on every ten minute block, right? So that the price of Bitcoin will inevitably go up, in my opinion, and so. You know, um, and and that will mean so much more money comes into the system, which means whatever Bitcoin is worth would be worth 10, 100 or even more X of what it is now. And if you have one percent of your portfolio there, well, you've just protected the other 99 percent of your portfolio. Even if even if those those dollars are worth very little, you know, you can. So, 
you, you see it and you go back and you and I did a I, I wrote a piece about hyperinflation. Could the US dollar hyper hyperinflate? Yes, it could. It'll take a very long time. But what happens really in hyperinflation scenarios and you see things like the stock market just explode because people are trying to they're trying to protect their money. And so they buy all these companies. But then then in the long run, with hyperinflated currency, those companies are crippled with the way they they operate and those those prices come back down. And the same thing with uh, with with housing and, and real estate. Eventually, it stabilizes into the new currency and then you're you know, you're back to kind of the same spot. But, you know, people search for that. So that's what that's one of the when you say call option or hedge, that's kind of one of the aspects of it. The other aspect of it is just this, it, it's, a, uh, it's anticipating this tremendous growth that we believe is going to happen on the Bitcoin base layer. And what do I mean by that? Payment systems, exactly what we were just discussing with, with Venezuela and Lebanon and, and countries where people need Ghana, you know, where they need some sort of payment system. They're not banked. They don't have a good currency to denominate in that they trust, so they're using Bitcoin. But they need to have some sort of system to do that. So that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting development. That it's it's fascinating, and I think that it's, it, it's growing rapidly. It needs to grow quite a bit more. We need to get about a billion people on that system. But that I believe is the future. I also believe that the future is to borrow against your Bitcoin. So you talked about, well, you have this Bitcoin, you, you don't want to spend it. Well, yeah, you can borrow against it, but it's not like borrowing against U.S. dollars where they can be rehypothecated. You can't see exactly what's happened to them in the bank. You know, so you give the bank a deposit and they lend it out and lend it out and lend it out. You can't see that. You know, you can't look through to see that. But if you have Bitcoin that you have used to take out a loan for short term liquidity needs on, and this will get better in the future, it's not there yet. But when it does, you're going to be able to see exactly where that Bitcoin is at all times. It's going to be as if it's in a perfect escrow where you can see that, you know, you can see on the code exactly where it is. And so exactly what's happened to it. And if it's rehypothecated, you will know. And you'll have multi-signature uh, protocols where you are able to see that and, and protect against it. And that's one of the, you know, that's one of the exciting developments. But that's where I see it going is where, where you have these second and third layers that are developed on top of it. And that's where it really grows that ecosystem beyond just that base need case against hyperinflation against the, you know, for the people who are not banked and in just as an investment. So those are kind of the, that's kind of the step forward in the way I see it. Yeah. So uh, if you borrow against a financial asset, that could be rehypothecated. I think in the case of a bank deposit, the deposit's there. And when they make loans, they're not like lending out your deposit. They're just making a yeah, that's new, right. new deposits anyway. anyway and, and, but it's, you know, insure. I mean, the reality is they, they, they make a loan, then they go search out deposits. So they go search out you know, overnight uh, loans in order to make sure they have the the, the right liquidity in their bank. It, it, it that's the correct, but those are those are guaranteed up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Right. Whereas right. you know, Bitcoin loans aren't, and you're you're taking the 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 risk of whether Bitcoin goes up or down. So wait, just just the point of constraining credit. You know, like I don't know. You can tell me how many bitcoins are outstanding. I think the peak, the max, is twenty one uh, million. 
So what happened, like if credit has to grow, if, if the amount of Bitcoins in existence has to grow in order for the amount of credit has to grow because credit is constrained by the amount of Bitcoin, then, you know, as there's 20.99 million Bitcoin and there's only, you know, basically no Bitcoin that can be mined left, how does the money supply grow, supply and contract? And, you know, in the, in the gold standard areas, like they discovered a new gold amount of gold in South Africa, suddenly there's inflation. And if there's no gold, it's like, there's a, you know, I mean, that's not a very like, uh, you know, flexible system. If you understand and 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 uh, believe what Jeff Booth says, and with the uh, the price of tomorrow is a book he wrote about, he ba- basically it, his thesis is, and 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 I believe it's, I believe this is the way that the future unfolds for us, and this is actually what brought it all together for me was that. Look, you've got two forces. You've got the inflationary force and the deflationary force. You've got the inflationary force of, you know, the of the treasury needing to make sure that future productivity is at a rate that can pay down the debt, right? So they need those nominal dollars, the dollars that just everyday dollars, they need those to be basically worth less. They need to them to inflate. There need to be more dollars out there to create more productivity. Why? They have to pay down all that debt that they've taken on, right? And so if you have more GDP, you have more inflation, higher GDP means higher taxes, higher ability to pay down that debt from before, right? So you, the treasury loans out a, a million dollars. Well, now the dollar is inflated. So that same million dollars is now worth half a million dollars, right? So it's it's easier to pay down that debt. It's cheaper dollars. There's more dollars out there to tax and pay down that debt. So that's one force. The other force is the deflationary force. So the deflationary force is like Moore's Law, where you see all of these um, advancements in technology in particular that are creating abundance where it was not before, okay? And one of the examples he gives, and it's a great example, is you take your, you know, it used to be, I'm old enough to remember, Jack, that I used to have cases of, of CDs or, or, or um, cassette tapes that me and all my friends, and we all, we'd have these, you had to go out and spend like $14.99 or $15.99 for, you know, $16 for a CD. And back then that was a lot of money right? That'd be more like $40 today. And so you just to buy one set of songs, right? But now you subscribe to, you know, uh, one of the, one of the, uh, the music systems, whether it's Spotify or Google music or Apple music, and it's 10, 12 bucks a month, whatever. And you get as much music as you want, right? Well, that's, that's, tremendously deflationary, right? So you have all of that, all the pictures. You don't have to buy film. You don't have to buy a camera. It's all right here. You just take all your pictures right here. And it's, you know, and they're all stored up on the cloud for a few dollars a month. It's incredibly deflationary. That's an abundance that's created. And so these, and so now there's, there, there's all these middlemen that are not making the money on the manufacturing of these things and the delivery of these things, the distribution of these, the stores, it's all wrapped up in this nice little, nice little neat package. And it, uh, and you and I have thousands of songs we could choose from in the next 10 seconds, you know, millions and millions of songs we could choose from. And so that, uh, and that's, and that's a force that is colliding. 
So the problem is the Fed and the Treasury, the U.S. government is basically there. It's colliding with that deflationary force, which is what we're seeing happen in Japan right now. They need inflation. They're having a tremendous difficult difficulty in creating it. And what happens is eventually that just collapses and the currency hyperinflates or something happens that, you know, the 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 confidence in that currency dies and you have to transact in something else or denominate in something else. And so that's where the Bitcoin, that's where Bitcoin comes in. And you don't need this tremendous expansion of money supply anymore. You actually enjoy the abundance that's created in a way that you can trust that currency that you're trading in and it's okay. So imagine when you wake up in the morning and you think, huh, I'm working the same, you know, and I'm creating all these things and I'm getting more for it instead of less. That's the hope. I'd, I'd say the, the Bank of Japan, they want inflation just because deflation is bad for the economy because when deflation, you have a deflationary psychology and a company's earnings are less and less every year in nominal terms. So they lay people off. And then those people who are laid off, they don't spend money. And then so it can be a, a vicious cycle. And I think that's what you saw during the Great Depression. And yes, it's true. Like during the 1800s, uh, there, on, on average, there was not a lot of inflation, You know, pretty much zero. And the economy was fine. I mean, it had, it had a lot more bank panics and, and recessions than even, even, than even now. Um, but yeah, you, you didn't have a lot of inflation, but it, but also down deflation occurs during downturns. So that when there's so what, why would you want to encourage a state of a monetary system that uh, in, engenders th things that occur during a recession? All you want is to encourage the all all of this expansion of the benefit of the of the deflationary aspects of, of technology in particular that you can then take advantage of and it can add abundance to your life rather than take it away. It's as simple as that. You know, when you can trust that you're, you don't have to spend your money right now or else it's worth nothing. Like it, it'll buy more in the future, you know, and that what, what an incredible thing, you know, cause you can trust the money supply. That's the difference. Right now, you just cannot trust the money supply. And that's the problem. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a mind bender. And you've got to get out of the current system mentality in order to really, truly, you know, embrace it. And that's a hard thing. But that's, but that's truly right there. For a person like me who's been in this financial system my, my entire career, I've been doing this for, like I said, almost 30 years, you know, it it's difficult to make that leap and to to allow your mind to imagine that it's because you're I'm stuck you know I'm I'm and I have to continuously you know remind myself that this is well this is not okay this system has to be different in order for it to work it can't be this system it has to be a completely different one yeah so so now I've got a question and I'm going to sort of instead of probing your point of view from the point of fiat i'm going to point it you know from the other from the other angle of why stop at bitcoin why you know blockchain is this wonderful thing sure bitcoin's great but what you know what why are you stopped there why are there you know not other great technologies other protocols layer ones uh stopping there and i guess maybe the, the first way i want to ask is 
So all, all this Bitcoin standard, Bitcoin has to be this exclusive thing that, oh my God, it's ultra rare. It's the p- pinpoint of the global monetary system. There's only 21 million of them in the same way that gold was. But how can there be, you know, I mean, I, I'm not a technology guy at all, as you can probably tell, but you know, I can copy the code of Bitcoin and, and make something up. That's literally a carbon copy of Bitcoin. And, you know, there've been Bitcoin forks. There's been Litecoin, which is, you know, I think a carbon copy of Bitcoin. Like there was silver to gold, but there wasn't like an exact carbon copy of, of gold where, you know, someone, uh, you know, with, you could just copy copy all of gold in, in their uh, bank account. And the only reason you can tell Bitcoin from the fake is that, oh, people say that it is, you know, it, it, it does rely on fiat, it does rely on trust. Yeah. So uh, it's the it's the benefit of the network. It's a network effect now. You know, the network is built out and it grew from basically just a few computers. And now it's, you know, tens of thousands across the world. And so that's the difficult thing is that, you know, you could create another Bitcoin, but I, I just do not see there being a path for it to have the same properties and the same immutability and the the same difficulty in changing protocol as Bitcoin. I mean, we saw that with Ethereum, you know, they changed their protocol, what seems almost weekly. And I just don't trust it. That's the issue is I don't trust it. They changed it weekly. I thought, I mean, you know so much more about the society, but like, didn't they, they change it from a proof of work to proof of stake, but are they making, they made other changes? Well, and that's the thing is that you're supposed to have these forks and, you know, they're, the, the, the issue there is that um, you've got basically one leader who's 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 pushing for certain uh, changes or a certain path for that protocol. And, you know, you don't have that in Bitcoin. You, you've got thousands of miners. You've got thousands and thousands of nodes, you know, and it's uh, and it's if you try to do something that is not accepted by the, you know, by the protocol, by the other nodes, by the other miners, you, you can get kicked off the protocol, you can get kicked off the network. And so, and you, that's just called a hard fork. And so, um, you know, that's the difference. The difference is that we, you have this network that's completely built out, that is growing, is getting stronger every single day, and as that hash rate goes up, goes up, that just means there's more computers that are coming online, more computing power coming online. And there, you know, there's just no way to create it without having somebody create a certain number of coins or a certain number of, uh, you know, and in that protocol and distribute them the way they want. And who knows if they, you know, create more. So the, the trust and the growth and the stability of the protocol is is not something that can be recreated by you know with with that just just by pure it, it would be like a security protocol they're just creating another security and that's the issue so and would so there's other than bitcoin there is no crypto project that you look upon favorably at, at all or there or there are Oh, I think there are use cases for them personally, but I don't I don't invest in them in the same way I do in Bitcoin. And that's why we started the the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund, because we're focused on growing this ecosystem because we trust this one. We trust the Bitcoin network and we want to try to help get a billion people onto this network because it's the only one that can be trusted in my mind. 
I don't, I don't trust any of the other ones. I don't invest in XRP. I don't invest in Ethereum. I don't invest in Solana or, you know, I just don't trust those protocols um, for that type of use case. There may be things in Web3 or, uh, or payments that they, can, that they can be used for, but we've seen issues with that. We've seen Ethereum gas payments you know, become higher than whatever asset you're trying to move. Uh, whether it's an NFT or whatever, but that's just, um, it's just not my, it's not my focus. And uh, do I think that every single one of them is worthless? No, I think there are, there are probably use cases for some of them, but it far, far, far uh, lower quality trust, in my opinion, than Bitcoin, period. What are some projects that you're excited about within Bitcoin? And yeah, tell us about the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. What kind are you investing in companies and projects? Bitcoin, yeah, yeah. So the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. First of all, I have to say that it's uh, it's for accredited investors. I wish I wish it was different. I wish we could open up to everybody, and maybe in the future we can do something that does. But the way that it is, if you're you're um, a hedge fund, which we are, this is that's just reality. So. But what we are is we're a hybrid hedge fund and private equity. So we, we own public and private uh, companies. And so what we've been doing is we, uh, we have been looking at particular, in particular, where we can make a difference. But we're Bitcoin only. You know, we're focused on, on, uh, we're focused on companies that are in need of capital but have a, a great business great leaders or great underlying business that have had difficulty in this last period because of all of the nefarious activity and the the fraud in FTX and and Celsius and, and so on so but we're but we're looking at companies and trying to get them capital so and uh, and so but we can we can invest in early stage late stage public private wherever we see opportunity in the bitcoin ecosystem and that can be miners it can be the lightning network it can be payments uh, and so but we're looking at all kinds of opportunities we've made some investments in uh, so for instance we made an investment in cormant which is a, a west texas based uh, miner and they are you know they've they can they can create uh, they can create Bitcoin at, at a steep discount because of available stranded energy out in West Texas. It's a it's a super particular uh, investment, and but we do those investments in a way that your your typical investor can't do, you know, uh, by buying debt and by having uh, you know a a call on on warrants in the future. Uh, we've invested in 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 a miner uh, up in South Dakota. Uh, we've invested. What, what's that one called? Uh, <laughs> but so there's going to be a press release that comes out. We'll talk about all of them. But okay, uh, okay. so this one is, is not publicly released. And then what are some, are there any publicly traded companies that you invest in that you can talk about? And obviously, if you well, can't talk about it, you can't talk. Yeah, about there's it. some 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 things that we've done is we've traded around. Uh, well, we've we're looking really hard at all of the miners because those are the big public companies, and we're looking up and down the capital structure, whether it's debt, whether it's converts, whether. Uh, it's it's some sort of preferred. We're looking at all of that right now, and we're we're taking our time to make sure that we invest in them properly. Because what we can do is we can do things where a typical investor can't, where you can borrow equity and buy bonds in in a company and hedge out your your company risk, but isolate the the uh, the alpha that you're trying to generate 
isolate that return in that we think that you have a, a claim to assets that, that's much higher than where the bonds are are trading. So that's it. Those are t- some of the things we're doing. We're also doing things like volatility trades where you can buy or sell uh calls and puts on on uh, on companies and own the underlying and hedge out some of that volatility or capture some of the extended volatility meaning when when volatility is very high which it's not right now you can you can sell some of that insurance to people because it's way overpriced and if we have that hedged out we'll still make our return and then we'll make a little bit extra and then we're we're good so that we're doing things like that. Uh, we're looking at some of these super, super overvalued uh, chips, and uh, you know, we're we're looking at some of the, uh, the some of the companies, companies that yeah, some of the companies uh, that have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves. But what we really want to do is we we're focused on on companies that are either disrupting or going to be disrupted by the Bitcoin protocol, and that's really important to us. And so. But those are some of the things we've done. If, if anybody wants information, you can you can check it out at uh, BitcoinOpportunity.fund um, and uh, just attest that you're accredited and you can find out more information there. But that's about as much as I can say here about it. <laughs> Got it. So I, I've looked into, you know, I'm a simple guy. Like I understand, you know, copper miner, how that business works, oil, oil miner. that have, like, And so Bitcoin mining, I could kind of wrap my head around that business. And like in the thing of oil, what matters so much is where the price of Bitcoin is. And it's interesting that like a lot of oil companies that didn't hedge a lot when the price of oil is at $120, if they sold out in the future at $120, oh man, they could have made so much money. But just like those oil companies, not a lot of Bitcoin miners hedged. Do you think in the future, you know, if there's a, a next bull run, Bitcoin goes to $60,000, $100,000, would you like to see some of those mining companies hedge, hedge it out? So they're not just kind of speculating on the price of Bitcoin? No, I mean, I actually, I like the difference between them. Some of them hodl and some of them, and that has inherent optionality in the price. And you, you don't need them to do it. You could do it yourself. It, it's up to them. It's up to those companies to do what they feel is right on the Bitcoin price. If you want to own a, a Bitcoin miner that hodls, you can hedge that out if you know what you're doing. Um, so uh, we don't, I don't mind that. I don't mind that at all. Um, it's, but it is interesting. And we're, we're, and we are looking at two companies right now in particular, one of them hedges completely. One of them doesn't, one of them sells immediately. One of them doesn't sell at all. So, or hasn't. So, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a great amount of opportunity that that's created there and we like opportunity and that's, and I think that's a good thing. So, yeah. Got it. Thanks. So I, uh, one of my final questions for you is, so Bitcoin, what does it give you? It gives you one Bitcoin. Like a security gives you a, a claim on future assets, future cash flow. So if someone says Bitcoin is not a security. I can wrap my head around that argument. But there are, I feel like in other crypto projects, to the extent that they're legit, they actually do offer claims on, oh, you're going to get this amount of interest. Oh, you're going to get this claim in a, in a business. And that, that kind of approaches to me what I would call security. So do you feel like a lot of non-crypto project, non-Bitcoin crypto projects are securities? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just a reality. Um, and so, but that's good. That distinction is important. And I think as that plays out, as we get more regulation and we get more uh, clarity around that, it's going to give, in, especially institutional investors, comfort to come into that the, the protocol and put that that capital into it that's needed in order to create that system that we're talking about. And we need more capital in the system, period. And that's going to take some time. But, you know, we have the happening coming up and we've got, uh, you know, uh, we've got some some ETFs that are on the 
that are on the docket. And if if they get approved, look, there's there's good there's there's positives and negatives. But I think the positives far outweigh the negatives on that. And it'll just be a, a super highway for for capital to come into the space. And that's important for for Bitcoin. You know, I know that there there are some toxic maxis who just don't want anybody they don't want any institutional investors they want it, they just want it from you know the little people but the reality is there there are hundreds of trillions of dollars out there that are in the investment space and if bitcoin can be if bitcoin can be seen and separated out as its own distinct asset class like gold then money will pour into this protocol and it will just make it that much stronger and that's just the reality well, James, one of, my, one of my final questions, you know, it's called forward guidance. So I got to ask you about the Federal Reserve. So where do you think the economy is headed? It sounds like you think we're headed for recession. I mean, do you think the Federal Reserve keeps interest rates at 5.5%, 5.75% if they do another hike? Or do you think, that you know, cuts are going to happen? I think we're going to, I personally think we're kind of there. I think we, you know, of course, we've got, we've got some key pieces of information that are coming up. Look, the Fed, uh, you know, they, they have a job. They have a job and their job is to keep inflation in check, Right. They say that they're supposed to have full employment, but you keep hearing them talk about how employment is is very strong. So they have to keep raising rates. Well, that, that's just an indication that you know they know employment's got to come down in order to uh, in order to help battle inflation. You know, and so what they're trying to do is make sure that they keep inflation in check. Do I think that we're there? I think that we're above. The neutral rate, meaning that we are we are at a rate that is contracting the economy. There's a flip side to that. You know, we're drawing money out of the uh, out of the reverse repo. Um, you know, they're not selling down their their assets that they bought up during the uh, during the pandemic. The quantitative easing assets they're they're not quantitatively tightening tightening as much as they they maybe could be or should be. But um, and so maybe it's a wash, maybe it, it's close to a, a wash, but I think that they at least hold rates here until the end of the year. I don't think I don't see them lowering rates before the end of the year unless we have what I would say is a credit event and we have a major disruption where they they really don't have a choice that they have to lower rates and they have to inject liquidity into the markets. What that could be. I don't know. That's why they're called black swans. And so, um, however, uh, I do, if, if all, all things being equal, I see them keeping rates here through the end of the year and, and, uh, and seeing just how effective it is because we do have a lag time. We have lag effects of, of these raises. They raised rates at a meteoric pace. And so we're going to have, we're going to have some time here to catch up. And when and we see some of those effects, especially in things like the commercial real estate market, you have the student loans coming due. You've got consumer credit, uh, and and if we have we start seeing consumers uh, defaulting on their their credit card loans, um, you know it's going to be it's going to be interesting. So I, I'm I'm again I I'm wary that we don't hit a recession that's harder than the market seems to be mar- that they seem to be pricing in right now. The, the market's kind of priced for a perfect landing. Yeah, so. we're definitely in Goldie, peak Goldilocks, but I think, what is it, 13 trading days in a row that the S&P 500 has been up? Yeah, I, 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 
Look, <laughs> just what, what I what I tell people in uh, in my newsletters uh, is we had an old saying in hockey, and it was "keep your head on a swivel, just be ready for anything." So definitely, well, I yeah, people's your newsletter with the informationist people have got to check check that out. James, it just popped in my head. So okay, so Bitcoin, okay, fiat currency, it's not backed by anything, very suspect. Okay, I understand that. We got to move over to Bitcoin. That argument, but isn't it true that a lot of crypto trading and Bitcoin trading as well, as well is is not Bitcoin to a U.S. dollar? It's Bitcoin to a, a tether, and you know tether stablecoin is pegged to one tether is one dollar. But you know you look at a little bit more into tether, where their proof of reserves. Oh, it used to be you could redeem it every day. We proof proof of reserves. We, everything is backed by dollars. Oh, now it's backed by commercial paper. You know, a little thing like is how important is it that one dollar equals one tether? And if it's not, I mean, how how big of a risk is that? Something you're worried about? Yeah, this is something I haven't really studied enough to be honest with you, Jack. Um, but that's a, you bring up a, a great point that's yet another uncertainty that we're going to have to get our arms around and that people are going to have to pay attention to and so uh it is it is something i'm i'm going to turn my attention to as well um and again that comes back into the regulations like where is how are we regulating all of this and where is tether come into that and what and what kind of proofs do they have to show and and what do those reserves have to be that's that's a good question um, because, you know, the, like we said, the, the network is only as strong as the, uh, the capital that's in it. So, you know, we've got to, uh, we've got to be sure that, uh, like you just said, that we, you know, we have, we have those proofs. So are you like more optimistic on other stable coins that do have a proof of reserves, like a, a circle? I, I don't look that much into it or, cause I mean, it's, it's when you trade on, on crypto, it is uh, a Bitcoin against a stable coin, right? Not, not against a, like a, a dollar. Yeah, typically because you have to put your money in exchange, and they can't they can't guarantee that exchange against uh, against a dollar, right? That's exactly right. So yeah, yeah, got it. But you, so, you don't, so you don't really have a have a view on no, I don't. I mean that on, that's a, that's something I need to dig into more, to be honest with you. And uh, and it's a it's a spot that that uh, that is definitely going to be important in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is my my final question. I promise is. How, what is the macro environment that do you think is good for Bitcoin on a trading term, a weekly, monthly, yearly basis, not long-term, we talked long-term, but, you know, for example, March, 2020 or April, 2020 to uh, November, 2021, whatever macro environment that was, you know, a steep yield curve, lots of money printing, inflation low, but rising growth, low, but rising, whatever macro, whatever was in the air, it was really good for the price of Bitcoin, as I'm sure you noticed. What do you think is you know, a lot of people say, oh, it goes up with the Fed's balance sheet. It goes down with the Fed's balance sheet. But like what, you know, I mean, a recession is probably not good for Bitcoin. But then if there's a huge amount of money printing after, who knows? I mean, or is that narrative something you actually don't buy and the back tests don't don't validate it? What do you, what no, do you think? I do think that, that, you know, money printing is it's an expansion of money. It's not just inflation. It's the expansion of the money supply that that is uh, that's very bullish for Bitcoin gold real estate, you know, all of them. And the reason is people have to put that money somewhere into a hard asset. And so, um, yeah, recession is not good. I don't think, I think if we get into a spot here where the market sells off, I think Bitcoin sells off with it. The flip side to that is, again, we have some, we have some really uncertain situations that could be huge uh, catalysts for, for this, for Bitcoin in particular, like the, the BlackRock ETF like GBTC being collapsed, you know, 
that um, you know into an ETF as well into a spot ETF. That I those those are wild cards that I, I you know I think that it's more likely than not that BlackRock does get eventually does get approval, but I don't know when that happens. Um, so, but if you have a tremendous sell off in the market, yeah, Bitcoin's going to be dragged down with it. There, in, in my mind, in my in my opinion, and that's what I would expect. However, if you do have a, a, a strong recession and you do, and I believe that we we are in a spot now because of everything I laid out with the, with all of the leverage that we have in the system, with just the sheer amount of debt that we have on our books, we're going to have no choice but to issue more debt and eventually print more money in order to monetize that debt in a period of illiquidity whether it's for the treasury market to shore up the treasury market um, you know or just to be sure that the, the stock market doesn't fall by 50 percent because that that's something that the the u.s economy can, that it won't be able to stomach without having to issue even more debt and going further uh into debt because of of our uh the the tremendous amount of uh of deficits that we run annually and so I do believe long term that, like you said, when we get on the other side of it and we have an expansion of money supply, the inevitable expansion of money supply, it's tremendously beneficial to things like Bitcoin. That's my that's my opinion. The, de- the debt cycle, the debt spiral. Yeah, but it's again, it's a long this is a long spiral. You know, people have been talking about the, the debt since the 70s, but. You know, it, the, the, you cannot you, you can't ignore the fact that it's gone parabolic. And so the question is just how parabolic can it go and just how many currencies fold into the U.S. dollar before we get to the point of, uh, you know, where people don't trust any of it anymore. So that's a long way off. Yeah. So. Uh, well, James, people can find you on Twitter at James Lavish and your, your newsletter, uh, jameslavish.com slash newsletter. Thanks so much. It's been uh, great hearing your thoughts and thank you everyone for watching. Yeah, awesome to be here and thank you for having me, Jack. My pleasure.